Hey, this is David Merrill, pastor of the Well Church. I would like to first thank you for downloading the app and listening to what God is doing through the life and ministry of the Well Church. I would also ask that before you listen to this message, that you would pray that God not only continues to transform lives through this ministry, but also that as you hear the Word of God proclaimed, pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you in areas that your life has not been given over to God, empower you to repent and turn, but also embolden you to be doers of the word and not simply hearers, in order that you become a light in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, and even in your local church body. Let us be radically in love with Jesus and radically in love with his people. Once again, I just thank you for listening, and may God bless you abundantly. Last week we talked about the shrewd manager and how we, we should use this worldly wealth or mammon that we've been given to shrewdly store up our treasures in heaven instead of being short-sighted and spending it all right here and now. The whole idea is that we should be thinking beyond now into eternity when we're fired from, from this life. Um, that was a, a hard parable to understand, but it was, it was a good one. Um, today we're going to continue our series. We've been in this series of the parables and we're going to be looking at another one. The parable of the two builders. Some of you may know it as the two houses, the wise man, the foolish man. We probably, most of us have heard the song, right? The wise man built his house upon the rock. It's not a very complex parable, but it does have profound implications. So we're going to look at this parable, which is simple on the surface, and then we're actually going to swerve a little bit. And we're going to dive into a verse-by-verse study of Psalm 1, which is a really great parallel to this parable, and I think it helps us have a much richer understanding of it. So let's just start by reading the parable in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus is speaking, and he says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Okay, so this parable reveals two sorts of people. We have those who hear Jesus' words and do them, and then we have those who hear his words and do nothing. I thought that was interesting. I, I actually didn't Notice that I noticed that afresh as I was reading through this parable again recently, that both of these people hear his words, but one of them does something the other doesn't. One is wise, the other is considered foolish. This is really a warning for all Christians, because he's talking to people who have heard, who have heard the truth, have heard the words of Jesus. Both, so again, yeah, both of these guys hear the words of Jesus. They hear the law, they hear the gospel, they hear Jesus' commandments, but one of them responds, builds his life on top of these commandments, on the rock. And then the other guy, he, he could take or leave Jesus' words. He wants, to, he wants to just build his house and then put Jesus on top like a little trim. You know, so Jesus is the rock, right? And houses were built out of rocks in this time. And so 
it's like they wanted this, the second guy wanted to go ahead and just build his house, not on top of a rock, but he wanted to put some rocks on top of the house. And we do that sometimes, right? We, we want a little Jesus on top of our own kingdom that we've already built. Like he's a garnish instead of making him the foundation underneath. So I know we're just starting to get comfy with this parable, but we're actually going to go ahead and leave it, put a pin in it, and we're going to head over to the book of Psalms for a deeper analysis of these two guys. So some of you may remember that if you are a keen listener or have been following along for a while, that about two months ago, um, I did a sermon. Uh, I started what I called a micro-series called The Great I Am when David and uh, Savannah had their baby. And then I left you guys hanging because I promised a two-part series. And then David, who's very um, much an overachiever sometimes, decided to come back sooner. And I never got to do my second part. Um, And so what I was going to do was a verse-by-verse study of Psalm 1. And conveniently, the heart of that message that I was going to deliver actually lines up perfectly with the parable that we're studying today. So we're going to turn over to Psalm 1. Uh, But real quick, before we read Psalm 1, let me give you just a flyover of the book of Psalms to help us orient ourselves because we're leaving the New Testament. We're going way back in time and we're going to the book of Psalms. So real quick, the book of Psalms, it's not just King David. I used to think, oh, they were all written by King David, right? No, he wrote 73 of the 150 Psalms for sure. He's got his name on them. It's actually an autograph on them. The other ones, some of them are unknown, could have been King David, but others were for sure written by some other guys. Um, Asaph wrote a bunch. He was David's like main um, worship leader for a while. The sons of Korah. King Solomon wrote a few. Um, there were these two wise guys named Heman and Ethan. They wrote two. And even Moses wrote one of the Psalms. I didn't know that till recently. Uh, and some of them are anonymous. And the time span of the book of Psalms was over a thousand or about a thousand years. So you had the one written by Moses way back in um, 1407 BC. And then they think some of the later ones were written by this scribe named Ezra in 444 BC. So the takeaway here is that the Psalms were written by a bunch of different authors over a very large period of time. Kind of sounds like something else, right? The whole Bible written by a bunch of different authors, long period of time, but one message, one purpose. And so these Psalms were compiled for one purpose. It was intended to be a songbook for the Israelites, the nation of Israel. And whoever organized it, a lot of people think it was that scribe I mentioned, a guy named Ezra, whoever organized and compiled the book of Psalms under the direction of the Holy Spirit, they put Psalm 1 there on purpose. So Psalm 1, the first Psalm in the book, it functions kind of like a thesis statement, like an abstract for a scientific paper. Um, it is a, uh, like a preamble to the entire book of Psalms. So it contains themes that you see throughout the Psalms. It contains a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And it has God's blessings for the obedient who respond to his commands. These are common themes that you see throughout the Psalms. It also functions like an exhortation or a call to worship. It's saying, hey, this whole book that you're about to read, the book of Psalms, is, a, is about worshiping and adoring your creator. This is our songbook. It's about worshiping God. So let's make sure you get your heart right before him before you worship. And this is why a while back, about two months ago, we were looking at the attributes of God the great I am. We looked at his self-sufficiency, if you remember, his, the fact that he needs nothing. He has all the resources completely enclosed in himself, does not need to borrow from anyone, and he is self-existent. He, does not, he was not created. He owes his existence to no one and nothing. We looked at these attributes um, in an attempt to start to just build our understanding of who God really is, because before we worship God, 
We have to have a right understanding of who he is. Otherwise, we're not worshiping God, but we're worshiping our own image of God that we've created. So today, um, with that parable as in mind and with those two attributes in mind and just this whole idea of the book of Psalms exhorting us to worship God as he is, um, let's turn to Psalm 1 and let's see how it deepens our understanding of the parable for today. So we're going to read through it and then we're going to break it down verse by verse. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the ungodly shall perish. All right, so we're going to analyze this psalm one verse at a time. And we're going to see how really this psalm and the parable for today are showing that there are two people, there's two ways, and there's two destinies. So let's take it one verse at a time. Verse 1. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And you can just leave that verse up while we... Well, we take it one verse at a time. So the very first word in the psalm is blessed. Happiness is what it means. It's the Hebrew word esher. It means happiness. And not just happiness, which we'll see in a moment, but, but we're all looking for happiness, right? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It's kind of one of our core human rights statements. We all have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're all looking for happiness. So this Hebrew word here that's translated in the New King James Version as blessed it is an intense exclamation. It doesn't just mean happiness. It means happiness abounding. In Hebrew, it's not a simple word. It's what I love about the Hebrew language. You know, sometimes English is just over, overly simple for this kind of analysis. But in Hebrew, this word is actually a plural word. It's not a singular word. So that's interesting, first of all. Um, another interesting fact about the word esher is that it is an adjective. It is not an adjective, excuse me. It is an adjective, but it's also a noun. It's weird. It's an adjective and a noun. So in English, you can't really have an adjective without a noun. The, the adjective exists. Here's a, here's a quick grammar lesson for you. The adjective only really exists in so much as the noun exists. Like you can have a red ball, but you can't really have just red by itself. I mean, if, with paint, I guess, but you, you get the point. Um, it's red paint. It's not, yeah. So you can't have an adjective outside of a noun. But this word, this word blessed, it actually exists on its own. It is a noun as well. Um, Charles Spurgeon had this to say about this word. He says, it implies a sort of plurality of happiness. And it is scarcely known whether the word is an adjective or a noun, as if the happiness qualified the whole of life and was in itself even better than life itself. Surely this is the highest to which the human heart can aspire. Here's a few quick examples of other places where this exact word is used in the scriptures. Um, in 1 Kings, it says, Esher, happy are your men. Esher are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. 
Job 5 says, Esher is the one whom God corrects. How happy is the one whom God corrects. Psalm 119 says, Blessed Esher are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And Psalm 32.1 says, Esher is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Okay, so this psalm opens up by dropping this word on us, Esher, blessed, exceeding intense happiness. And then what follows is sort of a recipe of sorts, how you experience this. But first, it's interesting, is that we get a list of don'ts. So this description here in verse 1 is not the person who finds Esher. The first part is, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. So the person being described here, who walks in the counsel of the ungodly, this is the person who listens to the wisdom of the age instead of to the wisdom of God. Matthew Henry, a great theologian, said about this person, he is not present, this is the person that is, is not like this. So the person that is, is pursuing um, Esher, he is not present at their councils, nor does he advise with them though they are ever so witty and subtle and learned. If they are ungodly, they shall not be the men of his counsel. He does not consent to them, nor say as they say. He does not take his measures from their principles, nor act according to the advice which they give and take. Now, it's easy to let ourselves off the hook on this one. It's easy for me too. We say, of course, I don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. All my friends are Christians. I never go to the bar. I never associate with sinners. But let's examine ourselves this morning. It's not about whether you are friends with sinners or not. This is talking about the counsel of the ungodly. What counsel of the ungodly are we tempted or prone to walk in? Is it your first instinct to turn to the wisdom of this world for advice? I mean, there's a pill for that, right? There's a wiki how-to article for that. I'm building my own house right now, so I'm doing a lot of uh, watching YouTube videos to learn things. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm just saying we do turn to the wisdom of the world a lot to find answers. When one of my kids is showing some weird bulbous um, growth on the side of their face, I immediately Google it, which is a terrible idea. This happened when I, did, I think it was Davy. Her like whole side of her neck like swelled up for some reason. I don't know. Still don't know what it was, but don't Google it because you think they're dying. Um, but that's what we do a lot, right? That's what I do a lot. I'm just being honest here. Um, is your heart unable to rest until you've talked to a doctor or if you've gotten a clear answer to something? So is, is everything that comes from a non-Christian automatically bad and wrong? No, of course not. Um, but the point here is how often do we turn to their counsel first instead of turning to prayer first or turning to the scriptures first? I mean, the ungodly say true things all the time. Satan's craftiest lies are always cloaked in the truth. Uh, but the psalmist declares that this is not the way to find Esther. We do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. The second part here is, it says, nor stands in the pathway of sinners. So this one who stands in the path of sinners, this is the person who is standing with sinners. And so we must not associate with sinners not going to stop there. We must not associate with sinners in solidarity. And so verses like this one, hear me, this is tough. Verses like this one were probably part of why Jesus was reviled for dining with sinners. Because this sounds like sinners should be avoided like they're lepers. 
And the Pharisees had this psalm. They, they knew this psalm. So that maybe this helps explain why they were so upset and shocked when they found Jesus dining with Matthew and the other tax collectors because they thought, oh, look, he's standing in the path of sinners. He's sitting with the scornful. But so, okay, while this passage clearly shows and suggests that we should not keep company with sinners, the entire picture of this verse is of a person who is walking with sinners, who's standing with sinners, who's sitting with sinners, who's really just exists where they are, who just lives in their space, who is, who is in their world and just drenching themselves in the, in the lifestyle of the ungodly. But Jesus, he preexisted in this place of Esher. He is Esher. He is holiness. And so he was able to, he was able to, to stay with sinners and invite them to where he was. He came onto their path only so far as to invite them onto his path. But the psalmist here is suggesting a person who is standing solidly on the same path as a sinner, who's not, who's not just stepping out and saying, hey, I'm gonna, I want you to hear the gospel. I want you to hear the truth. Come onto this path because this is the way to life. This is talking about a person who is just saying, nope, I'm with the sinners. I'm standing in their pathway. I am where they are. So that's what, that's what we're talking about here. So this last one is, is, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So again, this is the person who has now walked, who has stood, and is finally sitting down in companionship with the ungodly, with sinners. It says the scornful, scoffers, revilers. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells us that revilers, along with swindlers, drunkards, the greedy, thieves, sexually immoral, idolaters, and a bunch of others will not inherit the kingdom of God. So to seat oneself with these people, to scorn at what they scorn, to scoff at what they scoff, this is surely not the way to find Esher. So that's a tough verse to start with, but let's move on to verse 2. Verse 2 says, But his delight is the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. So now we get to the good stuff. This is the list of do's. We've got the don'ts, and now here's the do's. This is what a happy person, a person who finds this exceeding abundant life and happiness, this is what this person is like. Delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. So in contrast with a person who really dwells with the sinful, you know, walking, standing, sitting in their counsel and in their ways, we now see someone who's doing the opposite. Day and night, this person meditates on the law of the Lord and delights in it. Okay, let's talk about the law because this is really crucial to our understanding of what's going on here. We're going to pause here for a minute and look at the law. Um, What is the law of the Lord. We should know this because he meditates on it day and night. So if we're going to do the same thing, we should know what it is. The law of the Lord is his answer to the counsel of the ungodly. Now, God chose the Israelites way back because he wanted a people to be set apart, not living how the nations of the world lived. In Exodus 19, God says to the Israelites that they will be a special treasure to him above all people. They will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the nations were, and still are, but the nations were walking in rampant wickedness. And that's why God caused the flood originally. There was wickedness in all the nations. And then after the flood, it was happening all over again. 
So God enters the scene in Mount Sinai and he delivers his words, the Ten Commandments. He delivers his commands, speaking directly to his people through Moses. And these rules give his people clear instructions on how to be different. You have the wisdom of the ungodly on one hand, and we saw where that got the world, got him a flood. And then we have the wisdom of God on the other hand. So the law of God, this is a reflection of who he is. It is perfect and holy and pure. So it shows us who God is because God commands us not to murder because he loves life. He commands us not to lie because he loves the truth. So even the things that he tells us not to do are an answer or a reflection that gives us an understanding of who he is and what he loves. And that's why we can't measure up because uh, this law is the ultimate standard and we will always fall short of it. But that's not a knock on the law. That's not, it doesn't mean the law is a problem. It means we're the problem. It's a knock on us. Uh, Paul says in Romans 7 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. And then Paul goes on at length in Romans 7 about this struggle that he has between his flesh and the law of God and how it's the law, he says, that wakes us up to our sin and shows us that we are sinful, reveals to us that we don't measure up to God's holiness. See, the law is like a mirror. We've talked about this a few times, but uh, the law is like a mirror. There's a reflection in the glass over there. The law is like a mirror that exposes our fallen nature in comparison to God's perfection. Listen to this. In James 1, it says, James says, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So I don't know if you picked up on it, but there's a number of parallels even in that passage to the, the wise man and the parable of the two houses. You have this guy who, who receives the law and he sees himself clearly now. He's looked in a mirror. He's received the word of God, and he sees that he's ugly, but he walks away and does nothing about it. Now, it's important to note that when it says doer of the work in that passage from James, it says if you are a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Though doer does not indicate striving after works in vain um, pursuit of somehow making ourselves righteous or earning our salvation. This is, a, this is a big one that we mess up a lot in, in Christianity and the church. We think we have to earn our salvation by doing the right things, avoiding sin, jumping through hoops, read your Bible enough times, and then you'll be pretty. But that's not, what's, that's not what this is about. The mirror of the law reveals what we look like, and it also reveals that we have no hope of looking any better by our own effort. The law says, the mirror that you look in, when you see the law, it says, you're ugly. You're always going to be ugly. Ain't no cream. Ain't no injection going to help that face. 
And <laughs> that's hard for us to hear because we love to do things and we love to do things ourselves. We live in America where you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You, you're your self-made man. We love to do it ourselves. But the law tells us that we cannot, and that's why we need Jesus. In, in this passage of James I just read in verse 21, it says, meekly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Jesus is the word we receive. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word that we receive, which is able to save your souls. At the end of Romans 7, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, all this talk about the law, it makes me go, but hold on. We live under the new covenant, right? Yes, yes, we do, we do, and that's great news. As Paul declares in Romans 7, he says in Romans 7, 4, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. And in Romans 4, Paul also says, we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So yeah, we are no longer bound to try and fulfill the letter of the law, and that is good news. However, the law has not gone away. Just because we don't have to keep it perfectly does not mean that it's gone or that it's lost any of its validity, any of its perfection, any of its standard that needs to be kept. The law still has to be kept, but not by us. Because Jesus fulfills the requirements of the law for us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So again, Jesus fulfills the law for us. He is the only one, the only human who perfectly keeps the law. And if we are in him, if we remain in him, if we have allowed him to be our Lord, our Savior, then we are counted as lawkeepers. And this is, this is the heart of the gospel right now. You are a lawbreaker. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We cannot keep the law, no matter how hard we try. So we are lawbreakers. But Jesus kept the law perfectly. And he says, if you come to me and you remain in me, I will remain in you. And then we will be counted as law keepers. And when God looks at us, he will not see a lawbreaker. He will see a law keeper. Remember the parable that we started with. Jesus is the rock, the foundation underneath everything. So keep that in mind as we go forward. So the law of the Lord is alive and well. Now see, God still wants a people who are set apart, just like he did in Exodus. He said that we, the church, are to be a city on a hill, salt and light. We should look different than the world. So we see the same contrast of worldviews today. We have the wisdom of the world, and we have the law of God, or the wisdom of God, on the other hand. Now, the wisdom of the world wants to dismantle the law of God, always, always trying to tear it apart. The wisdom of the world says that it's beautiful for two men to be together. The law of God says that this is wicked. The law of the world says that it's good to tell a lie if, as long as it's justified. The law of God says that it's always wicked to tell a lie. 
So God's law gives us wisdom and instructions for how to live differently, how to live better. And though it primarily consists, yes, of we have the Ten Commandments, we have the rules for living laid out in Leviticus, it is also so much more than that. God's law also just encompasses the entirety of his word. It is all that he has imparted about himself. His wisdom, who he is, his promises, what he wants of us, what he desires of us, all the words that Jesus said in his commands. It is really the entirety of scripture. This is the law of God. In Psalm 17, King David declares, By the words of thy lips I have kept me from the path of the deceiver. He then goes on at length in Psalm 19, filling out the definition of the word of thy lips. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is a great reward." So it's not just the Ten Commandments, it's the testimony of the Lord, it's the statutes of the Lord, it's the commandments of the Lord, it's all of it, and it's to be desired more than honey. And I like a good, I like a good honey and peanut butter sandwich. Amen. With the Nutella and the, the fluffer, the fluffer nutter sandwich. Mm. But man, no comparison to the law of the Lord. And in the parable of the two houses, we see that. The law also includes the word and the teachings of Jesus. You know, he said that the one who hears the words of Jesus and does something with them. So these the words of Jesus, his very words, every red letter in your Bible, if you're one of those red letter Bible sort of people, I like the black letters, but you know, we're all family. Um, every, red, <laughs> every red letter in your Bible is also the law. It's the words of Jesus. Um, and like King David, the wise builder in that parable, he treasures the words of Jesus, the words of God, so much that he is building his whole life on top of it. I feel like I need to qualify why I said that, I, um, the red letter thing. I, I, I use this headlamp sometimes when I'm reading at night, and it has like a red light on it. And um, it like, keeps your night vision, and it doesn't wake up other people. So if, if Jess is sleeping, I want to read my Bible, I put on the headlamp with the red light. But it makes red letters disappear. So it's like, someone took all the words of Jesus out of my Bible. Well, where did they go? So I have one that has black letters, so I can actually read it. <laughs> anyway, back to Psalm 1. Let's get back to Psalm 1. I know we're, we're like trying to get back to the parable, but we're going back and forth. Back in Psalm 1, what we see here is someone who is not walking, standing, or sitting in the rules of the world, but is meditating on the law of God instead, day and night, because again, it reflects who he is. We should love the law because we love God. And in the next verse, we're about to see the result of this. It's the result of meditating on the word of God. In verse 3, it says, He shall be like a tree, planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So the person who does these two things, meditates on the law of God and delights in it, 
is shown here to be like a tree. This is a metaphor. It's really kind of like a little mini parable right here in the psalm. It's very similar to the parable or the metaphor of the house on a foundation. So just like the strong house is built on a strong foundation, the person described here in this psalm is like a strong tree with deep roots. So here is the character described. We have planted by rivers of water. We have bringing forth fruit in its season. We have a leaf that shall not wither. And we have whatever he does shall prosper. So let's look at those real quick, one at a time. The first one up there is planted by the rivers of water. So for this person, this person who's meditating, who's marinating in God's law, in his word, in the scripture, uh, there are rivers of water for you. There is a total absence of need or want spiritually. The rivers of water are close. It's abundant. You're planted right there. It's endless. There's no striving. There's just satisfaction and security in the endless flow of life-giving water. What is this water? Jesus said in John 4, he said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And in John 7, he gives even a, a, a better clarification of what he means by this. Later on in John 7, just to clarify what he means by water, he says, it says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John says, but this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So that's really cool. This water that Jesus is talking about is the Holy Spirit. So could it be that the psalm written thousand years before Jesus um, was talking about a promise for the Holy Spirit? I think so. When it says he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, he'd be a tree that is just planted by the Holy Spirit. We have access to the Holy Spirit and we receive from him. So I thought that was really cool. This is even this psalm is a, is a forecast, the Holy Spirit, for those who love the law. The second thing is that he brings forth fruit in its season. So this person is fruitful. In uh, Matthew 22, there's a lawyer who walks up to Jesus and he asks him, what is the great commandment in the law? And then Jesus answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus says a massive statement here. He says that the entire law, what we were just talking about, all of it is summed up in these two statements. Love God and love thy neighbor. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. So when it says that they'll bring forth fruit in its season, if the law of God, if, if the second big component to the law of God is loving your neighbor, then if you are marinating in that law and you are living by it and you are loving it, then you are going to be loving your neighbor. 
You're going to be loving God and you're going to be loving your neighbor. You're going to be fruitful. You're going to be displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, all the rest. And so, you know, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. we got the rivers of water right above there. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. He's been poured out on us. And so we are fully equipped to fulfill the commandment to love our neighbor. And when we do, again, we bear fruit. So it's a promise right there. If you are in the word, you will bring forth fruit. You will love your neighbor. You will love God and you'll be fruitful in it. The third line there says, his leaf also shall not wither. So we see that this kind of person is steadfast and stable. This sort of tree is not carried down the river by too much water, nor does it wither if there's a drought. So this person is not moved either by prosperity or adversity. He's like the wise man who built his house on the rock. His life is rooted deep. It's not going to move. Spurgeon, as Spurgeon put it, he says, this tree has grown upward in love and downward in humility. He is increasing in grace and spiritual strength. He is steadfast in principle, in doctrine, and in action. Ephesians 4.14 says that we should not be tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And the person who's being described right here in this psalm is not being carried about or easily blown about. Their leaf does not wither. And I think we also need to understand that we don't need to worry about weakening in our faith or even losing our salvation. It's a big one. It's a big fear for some people. They'll sin just a bit too far and lose their salvation. But we don't have to worry about this because this is a promise that if we are just in his word and we are, we are meditating on it, then we will not wither. There's a lot of forms of withering. Insecurities, doubts, Fear, anxiety, anger, apathy, depression, stumbling into chronic sins. But he promises that if we are meditating on his law day and night, then our leaf shall not wither. So maybe this is the secret to most of our problems. If we're struggling with depression, if we're struggling with anxiety, if we're struggling with anger or stress, sometimes sometimes we need a little, a little something to, you know, I, I get it, there's... There is, there is sickness and there's medicine for a reason. And sometimes we need a little bit to just get, to get back on track. But at the same time, as a culture, we are way over-reliant on numbing away our problems. We take a pill, problem seems to go away. But what if instead of medicating and numbing it away, what if we tried meditating instead of medicating? What if we tried meditating on the word of God, day and night, and see what that does. Because God has promised right here in this scripture, and this is the word of God. It will not return void. This is the truth. This is the Bible. It is real. It's true. It's living. So every word that we read is true. So either this is true or this is not true. And if this is true, and it is, then if we meditate on the law of God, then our leaf will not wither. We have a promise Why don't we put that promise to the test? Why don't we dive into our words, into the Bible, and see, just see if it helps our problems? Something to think about. The last one here is, whatever he does shall prosper. Now, prosperity is kind of a buzzword sometimes, especially in the church. There's the prosperity gospel movement, 
which essentially says that if you just have enough faith, then you will be healthy, you will be wealthy, and you will be wise. And if you're sick, and if you're not being healed, then you just don't have enough faith. Now, I do think, in general, that we have a faith problem in our prayers. I do think we lack often, I know I do, a true faith and a willingness in God's power and willingness to heal. But I'm not here to talk about that this morning because I don't think that's what this psalm is getting at. I don't think that's what this verse is about. What we see here is a different kind of prosperity on display. The Hebrew word here for prosper is salah. It means to advance, to prosper, to grow. It has a picture of growth. So this whole picture we're looking at here is a tree growing. It indicates growth. So it's a prosperity and it's a flourishing. It's a prosperity in keeping with the other promises that we've been looking at prosperity of the soul. You will prosper in these other things. You will prosper in bearing fruit. You will prosper in stability. You will prosper in your spiritual growth, in the esher, the exceeding happiness. These are the things that you will prosper in, not necessarily material prosperity. Because we all know, we really do, that material prosperity does not equal esher does not equal exceeding happiness. If it did, we wouldn't see celebrities overdosing, trying to kill themselves because they would, if if that was it, they've got all the comforts. So we know it. We know material prosperity doesn't lead to happiness. And on a side note, while it's true that we are not promised wealth or perfect health, it is true that when we do follow God's law, um, sometimes it does lead to physical blessings because it is It is practical in many ways. Um, Very simply, if you do not steal, then you won't have to repay and you will be more financially prosperous. Simple thought. Uh, If you follow the rules for cleanliness, for example, if you remain sexually pure, then you will be less likely to contract an illness. And so there is a lot in God's law that does lead to, to blessings, material blessings. But this part of the verse is not implying that we will live in fatness and and health all of our days in physical comfort. Rather, Jesus actually guaranteed the opposite. He said that we would have suffering in this world. But then he said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. So just like God's counsel, his law, is an answer to the counsel of the ungodly, his idea of prosperity is also an answer to the world's idea. The world says that you should be successful, healthy, and rich. God says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the mourners. The ungodly say that if you suffer, you are not prospering, or you must be doing something wrong. And God says, blessed are those who suffer for doing what is right. Job's friends told him that he must have been sinning because he was experiencing so much suffering. But Job knew that he was not suffering because of his sin. But instead, he just sat there in his boils in his sackcloth and ashes, and he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse four. Verse four, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. So now we get the opposite picture. We see what the ungodly are like those who don't meditate on God's law day and night. 
So this picture of the ungodly is a stark contrast with that of a tree. We see that they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. What is chaff? Chaff is that part of the wheat. It's like husks of wheat that when they thresh the wheat, they they get the dry husks away and then it separates it from the grain, the good stuff. And then the husks of wheat, the chaff is just blown away on the wind. So these people are dry, they're unstable, and they're easily blown away. They are carried about by every wind of human doctrine. And they may be among the wheat now, but one day the ungodly will be blown away by God's wrath. So we have chaff and we have trees, two completely opposite pictures. And so this is what the ungodly are like. And in verse 5, we're going to see the result. Verse 5 says, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So the result for the ungodly is the opposite. While those who are meditating on God's word, they must not sit with the scorners or walk with the ungodly. The ungodly, likewise, are not able to stand in the congregation of the righteous. They will not stand in the judgment, it says. Whereas we may stand in the judgment day, Because we have an intercessor, those who delight in God, who delight in his law, who have Jesus to be our law keeper for us, we have him as an intercessor. So on the great judgment day, when we stand before the white throne, we can stand because Jesus will look at us and say, he's mine, she's mine, bought, paid for, that's a law keeper because they're in me and we're able to stand up. But the great tragedy is that there are many who will not be able to stand and will have no one to intercede for them because they rejected God's law. They rejected him. And they'll, have, they'll not be able to stand. They will not be counted with the congregation of the righteous. So verse 6, final verse of this psalm, we see the conclusion and the final fate for this contrast we've seen. Two people, two ways, two destinations. It says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. This is the final statement in the psalm. It's our conclusion, the final fate for this contrast we've seen. It says, he knows the way of the righteous. The word knows in the Hebrew is yada. This means watches over, perceives, understands, recognizes. So God knows the fate of the righteous because it is his way. It is the way of Esher. It is the way of happiness abounding. It is the way of holiness. It is who he is. He knows this way. It is, it is his way. He is the great I am. And he is inviting the righteous to follow his law and walk in him. And he's promised us that he is given us the Holy Spirit to equip us, to enable us to follow his law and to walk in him, to find Esher. He's given us all we need to do so. We are not seeking it in vain. On the other hand, the way of the ungodly shall perish. It's the last words of the psalm. Back in verse 1, the psalmist says that we must not stand in the path of the sinner, and this is why because the path of the sinner shall perish. 
The road is wide that leads to destruction. The pathway that leads to death, it leads to wrath. It leads to destruction and fire, and God knows it. And that's why he's calling us to repentance. Hebrews 12 says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape him, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. The chaff is going to be shaken and blown away, but the trees that are rooted in the stream of living water will remain. So I don't want to leave on a heavy note. So meditating in God's law and delighting in it can seem overwhelming. We come away with questions. Do I have to jump through hoops now? Am I damned if I don't do it? Or if I don't do it enough? Or if I don't do it right? But remember something. Our salvation does not hinge on whether or not we keep the law again, like I said earlier. In fact, we are told in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we are told, however, in this parable and in this psalm that walking with the ungodly, standing with sinners, sitting with the scornful, living the sinful life, being where they are, it leads to destruction while delighting in the law and meditating on it leads to prosperity of the soul and exceeding happiness. We're not meant to walk away from this psalm, guys, with a heavy feeling of having to measure up to some impossible standard and earn happiness by meeting the standard. No. We delight in God's word and we meditate on it because it is lovely, it is perfect, and it is pure, and again, it reflects who he is. And whatever we meditate on, whatever we set our minds on, it will shape us. Colossians 3 says, If then you were raised with Christ, then seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The other really cool thing is that we have full access through the Holy Spirit to Jesus, who is the one who fulfills the law for us. We are planted beside the rivers of water. We have the Holy Spirit. He gives us all we need to bear fruit, to prosper in spiritual growth, and to not wither. So let us not be like the people in Jeremiah 2, where God says to them, for my people have committed two evils. He says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That is the way of the sinner that this psalm is warning us against. It's those who are hewing themselves out, broken cisterns. A cistern was this, this big rock. Um, it's really like a pit in the ground, actually, that they would, they would keep water in, and it was carved out of the rock. And so it's saying that we are, we are working our butts off trying to hew out a cistern for ourselves 
that cannot even hold water. We're doing all this work for nothing. You know, I was reading um, The Pilgrim's Progress recently. I'm going to just get a little tiny bit nerdy for just a sec. But amazing story, really inspired story. And there's a scene in there where, where Christian, the character in the story, he goes to this guy's house called The Interpreter. And The Interpreter takes him into a parlor and he shows him this room that's just covered in dust. It's so dusty. And, he, and then while they're standing there, this guy comes in and he starts trying to sweep the dust. And it just gets all stirred up into the air. And then, and then Christian starts coughing <coughs> and choking. And then the interpreter um, beckons to this woman who's standing nearby. And she comes with a pot of water. And she sprinkles it on the ground, on the dust. And the dust goes down. And then the guy comes back with his broom and he just sweeps it away. And the interpreter says to Christian, he says, this, this dust is sin. It's original sin. And the guy who came in and started sweeping without any water, he was like the law without the gospel. He was trying to hew out cisterns for himself. He was trying to keep the law without knowing Jesus. He was trying to keep the law. And all it did was stir up his sin and make it worse. Because if you try to keep the law without the gospel, then it's just going to make it worse. But then he says that this woman who comes in says she sprinkles the gospel on your sin and it, and it, and it tames your sin. It tempers it down so that, that it can be swept away by Jesus. And I just thought that was a cool picture that we have to have both. We can't just run to the law because that's what the Pharisees were doing. They just, they loved the law. They sure did, but they didn't, they didn't know the gospel that the law without Jesus is nothing because we can't keep it. So instead of trying to hew out cisterns for ourselves that can hold no water, let us be like the prosperous Christian that's been described in this psalm. Let us be like the wise builder who takes Christ's words seriously and makes them the foundation of his life. Let's be like that guy in James, or let's be like the guy who looks in the mirror and uh and sees that he's ugly, and instead of shrugging and walking away and doing nothing about it, we run to Jesus instead, who's the greatest plastic surgeon of all time. Let us guard our path, that we walk not with the sinful and the ungodly. And again, I'm not saying that you don't go hang out with your friend who's not a believer. That's not what this is all about. I, can't, I just want to emphasize that one more time. This psalm is not saying don't go be with sinners. We, I mean, Jesus made that very, he modeled that very clearly. He spent time with sinners all the time. But let us not be people who follow after sinners, who let them guide our morality, who let them shape us instead of the law of God. Let us delight in his wisdom. Let us delight in his law and his truth, his very word that reveals who he is, what he likes, what he hates. And listen, if you feel like you're just faking it and that you don't really delight in God's word now and you have a hard time reading your Bible and you just, you dread it even, and don't feel shame. I want you to know that you can pray and you can ask God to help you. So if you're not there yet and you don't feel like you delight in God's law at all and you don't you don't even want it, then start with prayer. Pray for yourself and or come to one of the elders of the church and we will pray for you. Start by praying and asking God to give you a hunger for his word. I did that. You know, I've been a, I've been a Christian a pretty long time and I've, I've read my Bible a lot, but there's been lots of seasons in my life where I've just been like, man, I just, it's boring. I don't want to pick it up. But, but a couple months ago, I just got down on my knees and I said, God, please just give me a hunger for your word. And man, it's like weird. It's like not even from me. Like lately, it's just like, like right now, I just want to get off this stage and go home and just read the word. And I feel, so I feel like it was a gift from God, but he just gave me a hunger 
for his law and his word and just to, to meditate on it day and night. And there's days that are, you know, I'm, I'm busy, I'm building a house. There's days where I, I don't do it, but this is the goal, guys. We want to be meditating on it day in and day out. So start by asking him and then follow up by doing something. Just start small. Start by memorizing a scripture. Pick one scripture and, and start trying to memorize it. Start reading the word every day. Right now, um, we're doing this Bible texting accountability. I've been doing this with a few guys this, that Mike, if you guys remember, came up and shared with us about that. And it's been awesome. We've been reading one chapter a day, and we've just been texting back and forth, me and a few guys, about what we're learning and what we're reading. And just that accountability to stay in the word daily, it, it leads to delight. And I, I promise you, if you're in the word every day, it will start to transform you, and it will bring you Esher. It will bring you delight. So just... Finally here, we're, we're wrapping up. Um, just to bring this full circle from way back two months ago when I did the, the great I am message, God is the great I am. And so just as we ought to meditate on his attributes, we also have to meditate on his law so that we may know his way because it is the way of the righteous. And sure, it does take some work. When we look at the parable again, the guy in the parable, he had to do something. He still built a house on top of the rock. He had to do some work. But our work is not meant to be aimless and fruitless, just digging around in the sand. In Psalm 1, where we spent most of our time this morning, we don't see someone scrapping and fighting to get into God's good books to avoid wrath and destruction. Instead, we just see a picture of someone who's resting. He's resting in God's goodness. She's a tree. This is the way that is peaceful and steady. Yeah, we have a job to do. We have commands to obey. We have sin to avoid. But Jesus promised us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So we're not just cutting our way through some jungle with a machete. Instead, we're, we're walking. We do have to walk. We have to move. But we're walking down this path that's already been steamrolled by Jesus. So my final thought I want to leave you guys with this morning is that um, we develop a taste for whatever it is we're eating. If you eat nothing but donuts, then you want more donuts you're less likely to have an appetite for something healthy. But if you avoid sugar and you eat good stuff, you lose your taste for sugar. I was doing this keto diet like six months ago, and um, it was awesome, and I really need to get back on it uh, because it just I felt so healthy. I, didn't, I wasn't craving sweets. I wasn't craving cookies. It, like, it was weird. It like, went away, the craving for, for sweets and carbs. Um, but holiday season, guys, I've been eating a lot of junk the last few months, and... Um, and now I just want more. Like right now, I just want to go tackle that, that bar in the back and, and eat it all. Because whatever you're eating, you want more of it. So if the goal is to know God better, to love him better, to like what he likes, to hate what he hates, then we want our taste buds to become like his. But to do that, we have to eat well. There's a lot of junk food in the counsel of the ungodly. And it can look good. It looks shiny. It's tasty. It's full of sugar. It's got icing on top. The problem is that when you start to sip, even just a sip from the cup of the world, it starts to taste better and better and better. C.S. Lewis once said that the road to hell is a very gradual slope. It's not a cliff. It's not a cliff because if it was a cliff, you would just walk up to it and say, mm, nope. But if it's a gradual slope, then you don't even notice. You're each step, you're going a little lower, a little lower. And the next thing you know, you look around and you're in hell. 
So the takeaway is not that we just have to read our Bibles more or else we're going to hell. It's simply that if we do read our Bibles, if we marinate ourselves in the word, in the truth of God, if we meditate on him day and night, then we have promises. We are promised exceeding happiness and our tastes will change and we will love the living God more and more and it will become easier. It will get easier to meditate. It will get easier to obey. So if you have, an, if you have a hard time with this, then look at what you've been eating. Look at what you've been consuming. Look at where you spend your time and your days. What wisdom are you soaking yourself in? Is it the counsel of the world or is it the counsel of God? So let's put these promises to the test. Let's choose to be people who meditate on God's word, who lean on the Holy Spirit constantly so that we might better obey Jesus's words. And just one more time, I want to emphasize that it's not about perfect obedience because we have all sinned and we will all sin. However, we have the Holy Spirit, and if we lean on him and let him help us obey, then it gets easier. It gets easier. We lose our taste for sin. So let us be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. So that's all I got for you this morning. I'm going to leave you by reading Psalm 23 to close. And Psalm 23 is just another picture of someone who is resting in God, letting him be their shepherd, just being like a tree beside the still water. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.